0: Each of us has a great deal of significance and our core identity is not our limited body. Our identity is much grander than what we perceive on a daily basis.
1: I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short and to stop sitting it out and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business. It's about contribution. It's about meaning. That is what we seek. That is what we truly want, and you absolutely are here to serve the world, and I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Thanks to Gusto for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll and benefits to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag get three months free when you run your first payroll at gusto.com slash dream Also, thanks to Cabbage. Get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. Credit lines subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital are separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank member FDIC. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I hope you guys had a great weekend. I had several heart to hearts with a very close friend of mine. And I just really feel grateful that I was able to process some stuff and have someone just like reflect back what she can see and hear. And I realized that um, what's going on often is that we're sort of hitting the edge of our comfort zone and we're, we're setting a new standard. And what was once the ceiling is sort of becoming the floor. And we are expanding and ready for a new frontier and ready for new possibilities. And I realized that when we hit that place, we come up against our stuff. And for me, it's meeting again this six-year-old girl who wants everyone to like her, who feels very responsible to please who feels that love is something that is earned and that in order to be loved, you have to leave it all on the floor. And I am coming into a new place and shedding a level and ready to ask for more and to receive more and to expand and step into a healthier place. And it was interesting, you know, the conversation we had last Thursday with Ramit and you could hear, you know, like when he was talking to me about what would you do if you spent more money, if you had more? And it's amazing how triggering that is and how right away he said that when he asked people that he feels like people are apologizing, like there's shame around receiving and how interesting that is because the more that we allow ourselves to receive, the more that we can give And not only give because we have more to share, but we give other people permission to also have and to enjoy. And there's nothing to be ashamed of by enjoying this precious life. And I just feel so many of us for so long have, as Mary Oliver says, walked on our knees for thousands of miles in the desert and this time to level up And to open up to more blessing and not have to prove and earn, but just to know that you're enough and to let it in. And with that, I am leading a five-day immersion this week for those of you who were beautiful and supportive and bought my book, you, uh, because you did that, you get a free ticket to this five day workshop. If you have not claimed your ticket, or if you want to buy the book and grab your ticket, then go ahead to don't keep your day job.com slash book and uh, buy the book and sign up and grab your seat so we can include you. I'll be going live every day this week, talking about how to truly find your work, how to, really live a rich life where you feel you are doing the work you have to do and you're free and living life on your terms and you are making a great living doing it. So we'll be talking about things that I deal with in the book. And if you can't make it live, you will be sent the replay. So you can go ahead and find a link to that in the show notes as well. And also I am doing something really Epic and extraordinary. Uh, applications are due this Thursday for a four week intensive. I will be leading during October and finishing off in November with a two day live retreat. And the reason I'm doing this is because I desire to. And the reason I'm doing it is because I know so many of us came into 2019 with big wishes and goals. And it's not too late to really set a new standard and to find really this itch that you're trying to scratch, which is what am I here to do? What work do I have to make? And how can I create a plan so that I can go into 2020 with this momentum, with these results where I'm living life on my terms. So this will be a very action packed intensive for those of you who are ready to commit a few hours a week to really showing up for yourself. I encourage you to apply and we will be uh, only taking a small cohort and then we will fit um, who we think is the best to connect with this program. And then we will send you an acceptance letter. And when we do, we will let you know the specifics dates, uh, what the time commitment is, what the investment is, and you will have, um, some time, a few days to let us know if you want to commit. So there's an application you can find in the show notes as well. You can also find the application in the Instagram profile at Kathy.Heller, Kathy's with a C. And by the way, I read every single message and respond. So if you ever want to connect with me, that is a great place to do it. All right. So this episode I'm going to share with you is really something else. I spoke with the very smart Mark Gober, who is the author of An End to Upside Down Thinking. In his book, he explores this incredible question that's been posed and circling in the science world and they're looking for an answer to this notion, does consciousness come from our physical being? He dives into a ton of evidence and data that shows that um, perhaps consciousness does not come from something physical. And um, we're going to talk about the experiments and the science that he shares in his book. We're also going to get into why this would matter and how this impacts who we are and the way we interact and experience the world and why this shift in reality would really be such a game changer on our journey. When I started reading this book, I just couldn't put it down. I was so in awe of all the evidence. Um, Mark is also the host of the podcast, Where Is My Mind? And this explores the same ideas from the book. It's kind of in the style of like Radiolab or Freakonomics. It breaks all the information down in a fun, digestible way. What's also really extraordinary is that Mark initially wasn't on this journey. He didn't start out as a scientist. He's going to tell you more about how he even got involved with this. But it shows you that if there's a topic out there that you're curious about, it is really not only possible to have it guide you into a whole nother path, but that it might be something that winds up changing the world. So without further ado, please welcome the really, really interesting, powerful Mark Gober. Thank you, Mark, for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having me, Kathy.
1: We're going to talk more about your book and we're going to talk more about what led you to that work. But first, I want to start out with you and your journey and like, what led you to want to write a book like this?
0: Well, if we had spoken about this several years ago, I would have known nothing about the topic that I ended up writing about. My background is, it has on the surface nothing to do with consciousness. I worked in investment banking in New York during the financial crisis and for the last almost 10 years have been working Um, at a Silicon Valley based firm called Sherpa Technology Group, where we advise tech companies on their intellectual property and innovation strategy. Uh, But in the summer of 2016, I was listening to podcasts. And I came across an interview with a woman named Laura Powers, who was talking about kind of alternative ideas around consciousness. And I decided to listen to Laura's own podcast called Healing Powers. And then was kind of exposed to more and more of these ideas that were Kind of challenging my my worldview, kind of the core nature of reality as I thought of it was being challenged by what I was hearing on podcast interviews and that led me to then read and research and I kind of got hooked, did that for about a year and after that year, I had so much kind of information in my head and a passion for the topic that I decided to just put it on paper and the actual writing process happened really quickly. I wrote the book over a few weekends in July of 2017 uh, and prior to that i I didn't even think about writing a book, it kind of came up at the last second. And now here we are.
1: Wow. That's fascinating how sometimes life just sort of takes you in this circuitous route and leads you to something that you really didn't even know you needed to know. Let's talk now about the book. This book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. So tell us what you found out and what you lay out so beautifully in this book.
0: What I was shocked to learn in my research is that There is a question about whether the brain does, in fact, create consciousness. So it's really, it's an abstract concept. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's been so elusive to many scientists. The way I I frame it in the book is based off of the model of a philosopher named Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, who says that we should imagine that all of reality is sort of like a stream of water. And the analogy is that water is like consciousness. Each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream meaning we're kind of self-contained versions of the water, but we're all part of the same stream. So I'm a whirlpool, you're a whirlpool. We have our own individual experiences because we're kind of just localized to the life of Mark, the life of Kathy. But we're fundamentally connected at the biggest level of reality. So the way I look at consciousness is that all the water in the stream is consciousness. It is that which is experiencing everything. So I actually think that no physical thing has consciousness rather consciousness is experiencing the physical world through the vehicle of a body
1: it's amazing like i'm crying as you're talking right now like i'm sitting in my office and there's tears streaming down my face because this is what's created like the most beautiful art the conversations the visions people have for coming together for innovation, like there's just so much that goes on that's so beyond what your physicality sort of would limit you to think or do or understand or feel. And so much of what we we desire and so much of what we're afraid, it's all about the experiences and how we experience things rather than a very physical reality. And I think everyone has this experience of this thing called, like, I had this sort of knowing of like, I wanted to do this thing, or it feels like a calling, or I feel like led to this thing. There's a lot of synchronicity, or there's a lot of feeling connected. When I read your book, and you guys, I hope that you do read it, because what, what I was like floored by was how much data, how many studies and experiments have been done. Can you just go through what some of that looks like?
0: Sure. So there's a phenomenon known as telepathy telepathic abilities, mind-to-mind communication, which is sort of like water in one whirlpool getting into another whirlpool. Is there any evidence for that? I mean, people talk about sometimes when they think of someone, then they get a text from that person or they get a phone call. Is that chance? Is it telepathic communication? Who knows? The classic study, it's known as the Gonsfeld experiment, and this is the basic design. You have a person in one room, we'll call that person Bob. And Bob is put into a relaxed kind of meditative state where he's just hanging out in that room. And there's another person in another room. We'll call her Jane. Jane is asked to look at an image that the experimenters give her. And the experimenters say, Jane, I want you to try to mentally send what you're looking at to Bob in the other room. Mm -hmm. And these are not people that claim to have any psychic abilities. Often they're college sophomores. So Jane is, is in this room trying to, quote unquote, mentally send this image to Bob, who's in the other room. Bob, after a while, is taken out of his relaxed state, and he's shown four images. And they say, Bob, which of the four was Jane trying to mentally send to you? If it were complete chance, no telepathic communication, we would guess that the person in Bob's room would guess correctly about one out of four times, 25%, because there should Mm -hmm. be no effect. However, the studies show that it's closer to 32%. And when you run the statistics on that over many, many trials, it suggests at odds of more than a billion to one, that something is getting through beyond what chance would predict. So this is one of the reasons it's taken a long time for these studies to gain traction is that it doesn't like blow you away. It's the seven or 8% differential. But in the science world, that's a massive effect. And it actually aligns with our day-to-day experience because if we were all 100% telepathic all the time, 100% accurate, we'd be reading each other's minds nonstop and that doesn't happen. Right. Instead, it's kind of the every now and then you get a text from someone. It's like, wait, I was just thinking of that person.
1: Yeah, that is mind-blowing. And I love what you're saying that it's possible. And there have been people on this show who talked about having some kind of like an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience. And you talk about some of that in your book. Can you explain a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So this other category is consciousness existing beyond the body and potential survival of consciousness beyond bodily death. A near-death experience is when a person has a brush with death where their body is is basically shut down. Sometimes they're clinically dead, like in cardiac arrest. Other times they just have a severe impairment to their brain. And people report kind of a chain of events. Not everyone reports all of them, but this has been reported for thousands of years. But they're Sometimes, as you were describing, they hover over their bodies, they're outside of their body. And I think in the most compelling cases, they see things in the room or sometimes outside the room that can later be verified by those who were who were healthy at the time. They're known as veridical out-of-body experiences. And veridical Mm -hmm. just means what they see is verified. But the, the point here is that if it's a veridical experience, if they're seeing something when their brain is off were highly, highly impaired, at a time when the majority of neuroscientists would say, this person shouldn't be having a clear consciousness, and yet they're having a clear consciousness, and they see something that's accurate, that is by definition not a hallucination, which is suggestive of a functional consciousness in spite of a dysfunctional body. Dr. Pim van Lommel, who's a Dutch cardiologist, ran one of the most well-known studies. They're called prospective cardiac arrest studies, meaning When someone survives cardiac arrest, the researchers speak with them, and what he finds in his study is that 20% of those people report a classic near-death experience, which is that blood stops flowing to the brain, and yet there is a, a large number of people that come back and report lucid experiences, clearer or more logical thinking than usual. So this goes back to kind of how I actually now view the brain. The way I look at the brain now is that it's not the producer of consciousness. However, it's highly related to how we experience the world. It's just not in a production capacity. Rather, the brain is more like a filtering mechanism or like a blindfold. So the brain, rather than creating consciousness, is actually getting in the way of it. And this is what the near-death experience might be teaching us, is that when we get the brain out of the way, people experience what they call clearer thinking than usual or more logical thinking. So it's like something is unlocked when the brain is shut down more. And a quote from Dr. Bruce Grayson, who I have a whole episode on this in my podcast where I interviewed Dr. Grayson from the University of Virginia and many others. He says, we are left with a paradox that at a time when when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. And those who have really looked at the data, they think that the best explanation is that consciousness just is not tied to the brain. It's
1: amazing. You also talk in the book about why people resist this so much, and I kind of get it because it feels religious in some way, but it also doesn't. It also just feels like a probable other way of relating to our experience here. And the fact that people resist this so much and push back against this so much, what is this about? And how does this prevent us from moving forward into something that could actually help us?
0: Well, you raise a really important point, which is that what I'm trying to do is understand the nature of reality and understand who and what I am, because the more I research, the more I feel like I don't know. And it just happens to be that the results of many studies over many decades point in the same direction that many spiritual traditions have been talking about for a long time, but I'm not trying to advocate any particular tradition. I'm just trying to understand the nature of reality. And when we put it all together, to me, the cleanest solution is something like consciousness is the basis of reality. We are interconnected as part of a universal consciousness, as they would put it. And so I have found it very interesting as someone who never was drawn to spiritual traditions before, and if anything, I rejected them, to say, wait, these people have been saying this for thousands of years, and now our science... It's all pointing in that same direction.
1: Yeah. And I love that we just established that right now. Two things. One, that that's not, there's no agenda here for either of us. Uh, but number two, which is that you didn't come from that spiritual path, hoping to somehow prove it. You actually were, if anything, more resistant to that, and then sort of were led to maybe take that in a little bit more. But it's, it's really neither here nor there because it wasn't really the intention. All right, before we go on, let's just say quick things to our sponsors. Our time is precious especially when we're building a business and we don't want to spend all these days trying to get the money to fund it. That's why Cabbage created a simple modern way for businesses to access up to $250,000 of credit. All you have to do is go to their online application process. It just takes minutes to fill out and get a decision. Then if your business qualifies, you can access the amount you need immediately and withdraw more funds if you end up needing more capital later. Cabbage has provided over 200,000 small businesses with access to funding and Cabbage has an A plus Rating with the Better Business Bureau, so you know this is the real deal. We've had so many guests share how hard it was to get the money to jumpstart their passion project. Like Susie Sarich was talking about that from Susie Cake. She tried to get a business loan and got rejected by 22 banks. Thank goodness it all worked out for her, but I think how much more peace of mind could she have had if she was able to use something like Cabbage? And I know so many of you are trying to build your small business. So Think of how valuable it would be to have those funds for startup costs or hiring extra help so you're not stressed out. When it feels like creating your life's work is a huge uphill climb, it does not have to be that way. You can get the money you need to run your small business today. Go to cabbage.com to get started. That's K-A-B-B-A-G-E.com. Credit line subject to review and change. Individual requests for capital or separate installment loans issued by Celtic Bank member FDIC. My absolute favorite thing about running my own business is being creative about all the ways I can serve you. But my absolute least favorite thing is dealing with tedious things like payroll and taxes. But now you can tame the chaos of payroll and benefits and HR with Gusto. Gusto has easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses. It puts all these tools in one place, making it much more easy to manage. Plus, Gusto automatically files and pays all state, local, and federal payroll taxes. And they provide health benefits, 401ks, and more for almost any budget. What I think is really cool is that you can sign, store, and organize employee documents all online. So you don't have piles of paperwork all around your house or office. And you're going to save so much time because running your payroll with Gusto only takes about 11 minutes on average. No wonder they were named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag. They have hundreds of benefits plans to fit whatever budget you have. So go check it out. You can get three months free when you run your first payroll at Gusto.com/dreamjob. Try a demo and test it out at Gusto.com/dreamjob. We've had so many conversations on this show about how, to the extent that we believe things are possible, that is what will create our reality, and this takes that to a whole new level where you're completely taking the lid off of what we've decided. Like, no, no, this is reality because this is what we were told. Like, who said so? And this is one thing that's really fascinating about science that people don't always understand is that science works on a hypothesis. And there are Pieces of science that you're believing as you go along because you don't know for sure. Can you explain that? Because I don't think people get that.
0: Absolutely. I I think there's a tendency to think that where we are right now is like the, the pinnacle of knowledge, that we know it all. And it's just kind of a human instinct. But when we look back at history, there are example after example where scientists thought they knew everything and a new finding came along and changed it all. Earth isn't flat. That was a big revolution, that was a major change in thinking. So we should almost expect if we look throughout history, that wherever we are now must be wrong in some way. And that's a kind of a shift in thinking. It's, it's like an intellectual humility to think that whatever our knowledge is right now, it's provisional. Meaning yes. it's based on what we know today, but with new data, maybe that will change. And I think this paradigm shift, why it hasn't caught on yet, is that it's, it's probably the biggest one ever. What we're talking about now is a recontextualization of our own identity. Because this model would say that, no, I'm not a body named Mark. I am a consciousness that's experiencing the body that we call Mark. So when we're yeah. talking about an internal shift in how we think about ourselves, that's major. And it, it, it was really hard for me. I mean, this was kind of traumatic when, I first, when it hit me that I couldn't overturn all the evidence because it made me think, wait a second, I've been thinking about my life incorrectly for my entire life. How is that possible?
1: How did that change the way you relate to your everyday? How did it change
0: the way you think about the work you want to do in this world? I think I was in some ways not lost, but in other ways, very lost. And I, I, it comes from this, where we started the materialist paradigm that we are bodies and consciousness comes out of the body. When the body dies, there's no consciousness. So is there any meaning in life? I would have argued to you, there is no meaning to life beyond a rationalization. So I found myself rationalizing, like I was a competitive tennis player growing up. I was captain of the tennis team at Princeton, and that was a really big thing for me. So if I won or lost a match, it would matter a lot. And then I would think to myself, wait a second, in the end, I know this sounds really bleak, but we're all going to be dead. Does it actually matter? And once we're dead, it's over. So that's where I was of kind of going through life, ostensibly doing fine, but having no real direction because I thought the nature of reality was that way. Now, I'm still trying to figure it all out. I don't think I have it all figured out. But one of the biggest implications of all this is the notion of interconnectivity. And I'll give a quote from Erwin Schrödinger, a famous quantum physicist who won the Nobel Prize. Erwin Schrödinger said, In truth, there is only one mind. And that's this notion of a one single stream, even though we're individual whirlpools, there is a sense of interconnectivity to it. And that was something I didn't feel. I felt a much greater sense of separation. And going back to the near-death experiences, this is one of the findings that has really rocked me more than anything else. And in fact, in my podcast, we devoted an entire episode to this. It's called The Life Review. And in the near-death experience state, when the body is not functional and the brain is, is somehow seeing and observing things, and sometimes people talk about being immersed in unconditional love and, you know, very out-there stuff, they, people talk about reliving their whole life in a flash. But what's interesting about it is that they don't just relive their life from their own eyes, they relive it through the eyes of each person they ever affected, and they feel the pain or the joy that they inflicted on those people. One of the people that I interviewed is named Danian Brinkley, who has had four near-death experiences. What's unique about him is that he fought in Vietnam, and what he told me was that he was vicious in combat, and the more damage he could do, the better. So in his life review, each time he relived the deaths of the people that he killed through their eyes, but not just that, because if we're one mind, as Schrodinger said, then it's deeper than just the uh, one-to-one interaction. Danyan felt the indirect effects of his actions. He felt the pain of the child that would no longer have a father as a result of what he did in combat. So there's a ripple effect that happens in this. I don't know, as Dr. Raymond Moody, one of the other scientists I spoke with, he calls it the near-death experience, a portal into another dimension of reality. When we shut the brain off, we have access to more of the stream. And in this, I don't know, other dimension, it's like the one mind is able to be activated and the sense of interconnectivity comes to the forefront. So as I've researched more and and looked into this more, I've actually kind of felt it more and more, where I have a greater sense of responsibility uh, towards others, not just myself, but everyone I interact with. And one of the big findings that we talk about in my podcast, because the researchers say it over and over is that the little things are, in, are actually the big things that what people see in their life review is if they mistreated a clerk at a store, they'll see that the clerk was then in a worse mood and was not as nice to all the other people on the line afterwards. And the person in the life review state doesn't feel as good about him or herself because they said, wow, I just, I caused that person so much pain and I knew better. So for me, I think I feel much more connected to everyone around me. And that's part of the reason I'm I'm doing everything I'm doing, because I think ultimately the implications are pretty life-changing and can lead to more happiness and a, and a sense of interconnectivity that I didn't feel before.
1: It's incredible. I met a woman who interviewed 2,000 people who had near-death experiences, and she flew all around the world and brought translators with her so that she could you know, take down the testimonies of people. And there was a woman, she said, who hit her head. And had a near-death experience. And what she saw was this very, what she thought, insignificant moment where she was, this had happened to her. She saw this review. She was running late for a meeting and she was walking through this mall and she had to like get quickly to her car and like get to this place And there was a little girl who was like five years old who was crying and she saw her and this little girl was agitated. She couldn't find her mom. And this woman is on on her way to this meeting. And she looked at this little girl and then looked towards the door and said, I guess I should stop and help this little girl find her mom. And so she actually stopped and asked her what was wrong and then like proceeded to stay with her for, I guess, like 10 10 or 20 minutes until the clerk helped make an announcement and she found her mom. And when she hit her head, this is years later, it gives me the chills. She saw this moment as a huge like, reason for her existence, basically, this moment. So that's incredible. My question for you is that so many people listening to the show are struggling with these very limiting self-doubts, like, who am I to do this? I don't believe that there's any room for me. And I'm wondering how the research that you've done and the way that this is now sort of integrated into the way you see the world, how that changes the way you think about those kinds of limiting, self-defeating thoughts.
0: Well, I think that the conventional view that we're taught, this materialist view, creates a sense of separation and a sense of insignificance. Because I'm here for a short amount of time when I die, it's over, and I'm one of a lot of people on this planet in a huge universe. What do I matter? And I think maybe that's the core of a lot of of a lot of what you were just describing um, but in this other view of reality where consciousness is the basis of everything and we are all water in the stream experiencing the physical world through a body, then each of us has a great deal of significance, and our core identity is not our limited body our it is it is much bigger than that, even though we're kind of veiled it seems into an individual whirlpool our identity is much grander than what we perceive on a daily basis so for me the the recontextualization of who and what I am based on where I think the evidence points takes away a lot of the limiting beliefs because I think Mark is the the vehicle right now that I am experiencing, but I, that which I am, is much greater than Mark. So kind of almost de-identifying from Mark while not completely de-identifying takes away whatever insecurities might come about. And I think that leads to a greater sense of freedom of, oh, I'm going to try this. Oh, that didn't work for the vehicle, Mark. Okay, fine. I'm going to go to the next thing. And then it ends up kind of leading towards passions. And that's how my life has shifted.
1: That makes so much sense. And I think so many people listening, are not only do they struggle, we all do, uh, with you know, am I good enough? Do I have anything to contribute? All of that. But then there's this other question of like, what am I here to do? What's my purpose? How has this work made that clearer for you? And do you think that it can for people? Is there a way to think about this now and approach this so that we can maybe figure out what is it that's our work and what is it that we're supposed to do? How would you think about that question? Because I think that that's the question for a lot of people.
0: It is. Well, I think kind of on a cosmic scale, this is something I've been looking at through research, through people that are highly talented psychically that can kind of tap into the stream better than others. So I've I've interviewed and talked to a lot of people that are kind of the outliers, the really strong people. And what they get from the stream and what I hear from a, a lot of people that have been near-death experience states, some psychedelic states that seem to unlock a lot, they, what I hear is a movement towards the evolution of consciousness. Meaning that the whole purpose of this physical realm on the most cosmic scale is for consciousness to grow itself. And we do this through the physical form. So, at the highest level, it's about evolving. And maybe that's what the Life Review is about, where we see our life and we see where we could have acted differently, I guess. And um, so, on, on some level, it's about treating others well and evolving in that sense. But on a more individual level, something that I do see a lot in the research, especially with those who study quote unquote past lives if that is real, then does the individual body provide targeted learning experiences for that person? So the life of Mark is very different than the life of someone else I might meet on the street. Just by virtue of the body that I'm in, I've had different experiences that might be catered towards specific learnings. So if we adopt something like that, and that there is kind of like a meaning to the vehicle that we're in, that it leads to targeted learning experiences, then that might lead us to pay close attention to, To the things that we're being confronted with on a daily basis the things that are difficult for us and the things that we're really passionate about and the challenges might be things that we're supposed to be overcoming or transcending in this life and maybe the things we're passionate about that's our our inner knowing at our core level of being water in the stream that maybe we're here to focus on this one area so for me what's been really impactful is is looking at those two different aspects looking at where the challenges are and looking at the passions and following the passions. And where the challenges are trying to identify where it comes from within me and then letting go of whatever the limiting belief is.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And it really dovetails so nicely with all the other psychology and research that's come and been sort of clarified on this show where every person who comes along says, seems as though what everybody's really searching for is purpose. And how do they get it? Well, we did this test and it, it seems as though people get a sense of purpose through being in service. And then the other piece is this idea of like freeing yourself from all these limiting beliefs. And so that just goes along so nicely with everything that you're saying because no matter who you talk to, they'll say to you, you want to be successful? Well, it's not just about knowing what emails to send or what hashtag to use. Like first we have to begin with what's going on in your mind, right? Every single person I know who's successful starts to talk about Mindfulness, the mind, how you're, you know, really choosing your thoughts, the way that you're understanding, really your relationship to life is what you believe it is. And I think the world is so thirsty for this. I think that we've gotten so exhausted with all the stuff and it's like, it's not doing it.
0: Well, you're bringing up a point about the nature of happiness. And this is something I I used to think about before I started consciousness research. And I remember when I was an analyst doing investment banking in New York during the crisis, not sleeping. And I would talk yeah. to some of my colleagues. I'm like, what is happiness? Because I'm not happy right now. I'm, I'm working nonstop, not sleeping. But I don't know what, it, what would actually make me happy. Because each time I kind of achieve something, I end up going back to baseline. And then I'm looking for the next thing that I'm interested in. Sure, and there's too. a term in psychology. It's called the hedonic treadmill, where you get the thing that you want, but you really haven't gone anywhere. Five minutes later, you're on to the next thing. And so what is the nature of happiness? And I, I couldn't figure it out. And I would research and look at look at what people were saying. And I didn't really see a satisfying answer. I saw certain things that were correlated with happiness. And you mentioned one, which is uh, doing good for others can create happiness. But I think maybe as a society, we, we have it backwards in that we look for some object for happiness, whether it's a relationship, a person, money, a, a promotion, something objective in the world outside. And when we get that object, we are happy for a short amount of time. And we say, that object made me happy. That drug made me happy. But in fact, it might be the reverse, where happiness is the innate nature of consciousness. So when we, when we get an object that we are looking for in the world, or when someone gets the relationship, gets the job, then it temporarily removes the block to the happiness that was already there. So the object didn't cause the happiness. The object just gave us a glimpse into what was already there by removing the block.
1: That's amazing. And it's so true. And this is why I know that there have been so many incredible people who've endorsed your book, like Jack Canfield, Goldie Hahn endorsed your book, as well as like a thousand scientists and neurosurgeons. But this is why the the work of mindfulness is really so fascinating, too, because the science is suggesting all the things that are happening there is really really exactly what you just said that happiness is always within reach and it's just a matter of learning to quiet that that busy busy mind and we are all so identified with it and really what you're saying is when we remove ourselves from that and we step into this consciousness of The awareness of our own experience that's beyond the spinning mind. Therein lies so much flow. And from there, we can experience tremendous joy. We can be led to incredibly connected moments. We can affect the world. I think it's just absolutely stunning that you've done this work that gives us something to, to hold on to, where that can be something that we can start to really look at as an actual probability that this really is not just like a good idea, but that this is founded in the same science that teaches us what water is made of.
0: Right. And if this is the nature of reality, my opinion personally has been to try to align with reality as much as possible. And that's just what it seems to be, whether I like it or not. I was very resistant to this because it was so challenging to me in the beginning. Uh, But I realized I had to accept what reality is because who am I to challenge what is? Do you find
1: now that you... Sort of feel pulled in certain ways, or sort of trust certain things in a different way than maybe you did before.
0: Definitely, I'm I'm much more inclined to follow passions and instincts than I used to be. I'm much more inclined to listen to an instinct, even if I can't back into the rationality behind it. So it is kind of taking me out of the brain, which I'm still very much in, but more into a feeling way of being in the world. And I think there's a mixture. There's a, a hybrid that is probably the optimal way to, to function.
1: Now, how do you feel like, you know, the difference between these things that are coming from your mind, like do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And things that are like more of an intuitive, like, no, the you of you is the thing saying, don't do this. Or yes, you want to do this. Like, how do you tap into like working that process so that you can be directed in the, in the compass that really is charting, you know, where you're, really wanting to go? It's a great question.
0: I think I'm still working on it, but ultimately trial and error. And over time, I see where maybe there were mistakes and other times where the instinct was a pure instinct, what that, what that felt like. And if this is something subjective, I can't write it out, but it's just the way something uh, generally feels.
1: Yeah. And I think that we say we don't know, but I think so many people have, have suggested on this show that you, you usually know you just might not want to accept because it might mean you have to get on stage, or it might mean you have to reach out and call that person. But you if you really get quiet, I think that's what this is all just leading back to is like, learning how to quiet the mind. And so do you have any practice that you do to try to get yourself more in touch and more rooted in your consciousness rather than being in your busy mind? Or, Or is that not something that you
0: you do regularly. I absolutely have. I've experimented with, experimented with different techniques over time, like binaural beats. They're beats you can listen to that put your brain into a, a more relaxed state. I've done oh. flotation tanks, which is sensory deprivation. Yep. And those are, I think, mm-hmm. are pretty amazing, but also just general breathing techniques and meditation. Um, so those are things that I now do every day just to, it's, it's a practice. It's practicing being in that state so that when you're out in the world, it's easier to be in a calm state. But I, I think at a conceptual level, one of the topics that's been most helpful is is the idea of non-attachment, which is distinct from detachment. Detachment is that I don't really care what happens at all. Non-attachment means I'm not bound to whatever the outcome is for something. Maybe I want it to happen, but if it doesn't happen, it's okay. And that comes from and understanding that I don't understand the universe or the mechanics of the universe or what matters and why and what is quote unquote good or bad, because maybe if I don't get something that I think I want on a more cosmic level, in the end, it's much better that that didn't happen. Yeah. And the converse could be, if something does happen, maybe it, it does. It's not in the way that I understand it. So that that principle of non attachment. I think is really important. Also going back to limiting beliefs, because if a limiting belief affects us, it's because we are attached to some idea. And we have to ask ourselves, where does that attachment come from? It comes from a belief that something would be better for us. And where does that come from? Well, that comes from a very limited understanding of the nature of reality from our little whirlpool. And also, I remember this from my studies in psychology. There's uh, something known as affective forecasting errors, which these are studies where people are shown to be terrible at predicting the things that they will like or dislike in the future. So we have to just keep in mind, and this is something I have to constantly tell myself, is that I, in my position in this present state, I don't know even what I want in the future or don't want. And I couldn't possibly know whether an outcome is good or bad for me and the universe and for the broad stream. Therefore, I will follow my passions, but whatever the outcome is, I'm not going to be tied to it. And that I think over time, it takes time, and I'm still doing it. It's a very liberating feeling when it works
1: yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it really is like to, to sort of like look the other way, that feels so foolish because so much evidence points to everything that we're saying and that you're saying. so thank you so much for writing this book. thank you for compiling. I mean you guys, the amount of research that is in this book it's it's incredible, and I'm sure part of the reason you knew you you had That was the task at hand, is because you knew there would be a lot of skeptics and you wanted to fill the book with data, Mm
0: -hmm. right? I had to write it that way. In my position in in the financial world, it had to be backed with more data than I probably even needed.
1: What was it like for you personally? Like, what has happened for you since writing a book like this?
0: Well, it's rewarding when I hear from people who have read the book who I don't know at all, and they say that the book shifted their perspective on life and their life is improving. That's, as an author, that's the best thing I could hope for. I haven't heard as much from people who don't like it, honestly. I, I've maybe a few here and there where I'll read a review of someone who says it's kind of all garbage research or it's someone who will say, maybe I right. put the book down after I started reading it because it's garbage, which is kind of like proving mm. the point that I was making, which is that many people are not looking in the telescope, which is what the clergyman did with Galileo when they didn't want to see his evidence. Um, so, but I haven't had that many confrontations. When I started researching this, I would tell friends about it. And many of my friends are in like the business world. And I would say most were receptive. I had a few that were really resistant and they were like, man, you're crazy. Like, You're still my friend, but don't do this. And I, I felt like I had to do it. And there's it's really important for any individual, but also I think for the world as a whole. Um, I kind of closed the book with these bigger topics. I think the many of the the problems that we see in the world, whether they're interpersonal problems or even on a broader scale, socioeconomic, political, geopolitical, they stem from a belief in separation and a belief that we are maybe finite individuals, which all stems from the belief that consciousness comes from the brain and the the nihilism or the lack of meaning that comes from that. So if we adopt an alternative picture of reality, which is where science is pointing then I think many of the behaviors we see in the world would become irrational. So altruism is one of the terms that people debate in, in biology. Why, why does it feel good to help others if it's all about survival of the fittest? Shouldn't selfishness be right. it? And some people, will, like Richard Dawkins, wrote a book called The Selfish Gene, where altruism makes sense if um, what by helping others you actually enable the success of your own genes. And so maybe there's an element of that. But what I I think now is that there's something much broader about altruism, which is that altruism is the universal stream of consciousness being selfish. By helping others, you are helping yourself because it's the same stream. And I think if that is actually the nature of reality, many, if not all of the world's problems would start to dissipate. And we're just on a very dangerous trajectory right now on the planet where people just not everyone, but there is there's a, there are a lot of problems. And I think it's it stems from this misunderstanding of reality. And it all, to me, comes back to the belief that's unproven, which is that consciousness comes from the brain.
1: And I love how you just said, and it's unproven.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Unbelievable. So brilliant. Tell us where we can find you. Tell us where we can find your book and your podcast and all your other work.
0: My website is a good place to start. It's markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. My book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Audiobook, ebook, hardcover for now. And my podcast is called Where Is My Mind? And it's available on all the major podcast players. And it features my interviews with many of the people that I wrote about in my book.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this work. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had in my entire life.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And thanks for all that you're doing for the world. Wow. Just wow. Right? So here are some takeaways. Number one,
1: we are all individual whirlpools made from the same stream of consciousness. Number two, sometimes when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is actually functioning better than ever. Number three, we should approach what we know with intellectual humility. It can always change. Number four, in truth, there is only this oneness, this one mind. And so in a sense, we are all connected. Number five, you have a great deal of significance. Your core identity is not just limited, perhaps, to your body. Number six, don't back away from a challenge. Challenges arise to help you transcend and overcome something. Number seven, happiness is the innate nature of consciousness. That is our default. And number eight, you're not bound to the outcome. So follow your passion and let yourself be liberated no matter what happens. Thank you guys for listening. I know that you have so many things, so many things you could be doing instead of listening to the show. So I get it. And it means the world that you decided to spend your time here with me. We have a lot more awesome episodes coming up. So please go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen, because I want you to make sure that you hear these conversations. Gabby Bernstein will be on the show soon and Colby Calais. Definitely subscribe so you don't miss out. also, um, we'd love to hear what you think, so leave us a rating and review and If you like this episode or any other episode, it helps tremendously when you share this with a friend go ahead and and share the link with someone. You can go ahead and do that now. I do believe that we all deserve this kind of feeling of purpose, and I think that it's possible for every person in this world. I would love to see you in the immersion. I can't wait to also see who's going to apply for this intensive and be with me for the four and a half weeks. So you can find the application in the show notes. And it really does help tremendously when you buy my book. So if you think the work I'm doing deserves to be heard and is worth $15, go ahead and pre-order your copy. Thank you guys. I'll leave you with a song of mine as I always do. And I'll talk to you on Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit authenticshows.com. Who
2: knows what to-